Hi, this is Nick Dawson, the editor-in-chief of Talk House Film, and you're listening to the Talk House Film Podcast. It's been a big year for Wim Wenders. An Oscar nomination for his documentary Salt of the Earth, the premiere of his new 3D drama Everything Will Be Fine at the Berlin Film Festival, a retrospective of his work at the Museum of Modern Art, and now Janus Films' traveling 28 film series Wim Wenders Portraits Along the Road which features newly restored prints of many of his movies, including the five-hour director's cut of Until the End of the World. Since the inception of TalkHouse Film, I've been planning to do something with Vendors, but his busy schedule meant it was tricky to find the time. Don't give up on me, he wrote to me last year. And so I didn't. When he was in New York City for the launch of Portraits Along the Road at IFC Center, everything came together finally, and he sat down for a Skype chat with the great Alison Anders, the writer-director of such movies as Grace of My Heart and Gas Food Lodging. The two of them have been friends for 30 years, and in their lively and fascinating conversation, they talk about how Vim became Allison's mentor, a possible sequel to Paris, Texas, why Vendors didn't direct True Detective, how until the end of the world presciently anticipated everything from GPS to search engines to selfie culture, and also a lot of stuff about music including how Vendors saved the goalie's anxiety at the penalty kick by digitally replacing an Elvis song with a copycat track, Vim buying Allison her first iPod, and a discussion of the art of the mixtape. So, there, we have to get into some serious conversation, Alison. We how, do, how we got to do How are we ever going to do this? I have no idea. You know I what? laugh always I with you, that's the problem. I know, I know. Well, I... Here's one thing we can start with is, you know, I was telling Nick that as much as we connect on movies, we really, our first big connection is music, really. Yes, I still have your album collection. <laughs> How many did you and, send me? <laughs> which, which, by the way, when I told this to Tiffany last night, I said, you know, I sent him not only mixtapes, I sent him records. And she was like, she was a little kind of annoyed by that. She was like, so those records are with him. So, so <laughs> she's going to sue her mother for having yeah. sent the most precious record to a foreign director. But she's right. I mean, th some of these were great. And I think I have them as a, as a solid little department in my record collection. So if ever she wants her mom's records back, let her get in touch with me. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I'm so glad you still have them. Yeah, I would never throw away anything, especially not vinyl. But at the time, I didn't know what to do. I had this tiny little apartment and you kept sending me records. I didn't have any space for it. And then you kept <laughs> sending me letters. Do you remember how many letters you sent me? I sent you a lot of letters. A lot of letters. And, your, all about and your, you your beautiful Donata... Yeah. I know, right? You and actually you're beautiful. Stalked me, let's face it. You know, it's true. I you know, tell people it, that. It I go, worth it. I, it was all worth I stalked it. him. Yes, it was. It was all worth it because when, as soon as I saw you and the work you did in Paris, Texas with Harry Dean, I mean, it was just priceless. And I don't know if it, we'd probably be still shooting the movie and, and, and Harry, Dill, Harry would still not know his dialogue if it hadn't been for you. <laughs> Well, you I just cannot pumped believe... it into his brain. I don't know what he did, but in the end, he, he could do it. That was genius. Well, I feel bad a little bit because 
you know, he was kind of walking around saying, you know, I, I felt like I interfered a little bit, but, but I also felt like you gave me this experience that nobody else would ever give anybody. I mean, who, like, gives somebody that experience? I mean, I know I kind of, you know, uh, lied my ass off to get that grant to get on your film, but... Um, and but get the, your friends uh, on it, too. And to get my friends on it, too. <laughs> I guess I should explain that. So what I did was, I knew you were going to be making Paris, Texas, so I lied and said that you had invited me, and I won this grant. And then when you came to L.A. to see my movie, I told you I won this grant. And you said, congratulations. And I said, yeah, it's to study under you on Paris, Texas. And you got this faraway look <laughs> and said, well, I guess you have to come. And I said, yeah, and these two guys won the same grant. So, yes. So we we went. and uh, but But even at that, I think, I don't know that I would do that. You know, I mean, somebody would really have to put themselves out there, for good like reasons. Like I did. So, yeah, I think you for did me. well. Yeah. Thank you, darling. And I think you guys learned a lot on that movie. We learned so much, and you know, them. I was thinking, I was telling someone recently how I told you the last at the, after the rap party that I was going to try and use everything that I learned from you. And I, I knew that I couldn't use it for a long time because I was making these little tiny Super 8 movies at school, but I thought eventually. And uh, you said, well, I'm counting on it. And, and uh, you, you told me that you sometimes saw me as this old woman in the future that had done all these amazing things. And you had said, now, I don't know if it's going to be with film, by the way, I put that dialogue in one of my films too, in Grace in My Heart. But I you said, I don't credit. know if it'll. I know you didn't. I'm <laughs> sorry, I'm giving you credit right now. Dialogue by Vin Vendors. <laughs> so you said, I don't know if it'll be with film because I don't know how long this will last. And isn't it interesting now that we're sort of in this vague place now? Yeah, we're in limbo now. We're in a weird place. We're in limbo, but you've been doing um, television, huh? You've been working on I have. City and Southland, and I have not yet seen any of your work uh, on, on these series. So are you very busy with that? Well, I, w I have been, yes. This, this uh, year, in fact, was pretty back-to-back. Pretty -back. And uh, while it's sort of like making movies, it's also not really. Also a little bit more frantic. See, I almost got yes. involved. I almost got involved with True Detective and had to finally say no because I wasn't finished with the last movie, and I would have had to drop it in the middle of post-production, and it was a very, very hard decision because I would have loved to try some. Um, oh yeah, and and I I love the format and and some of these writers and some of these actors are fabulous, and I yes. think you can do really good work there. So, and I am used Absolutely. to shooting fast, so now I think I can handle it. Absolutely, that's the thing too. Is the fast doesn't doesn't phase me, 
because that's what I've had to do anyways. And, and most likely what I learned from you as well on Paris, Texas, because that was not, how long was that shoot? It wasn't all that long, was no, it? No, we, we, the actual shooting time was only four to five weeks. And actually the last week we were just a tiny little reduced company. And we had to cut right. all the shooting schedule down because we were blackmailed, you remember? Blackmailed by the Teamsters. And yes. had to hire all oh. these guys. And there went two weeks of, of, of shooting. And in the end, I think we didn't have an actual shooting time, not more than four to five weeks. It was a right. Blast. We really right. shot fast. We really yeah, that was fast. really crazy. And then we were, yeah, because we were down for a little while too. So Yeah, because we ran out of story. We ran out of script. I was sitting with Claire Denis in this dinky hotel on Sunset Boulevard and we tried to figure out how to continue the movie and we sent everybody home, including you, but of course you only had to move to the valley. <laughs> That's right. Some of the other guys That's actually right. went home in Europe and then we called them two weeks later and said we now know how to continue the film and then we called them, called everybody. Oh my God, I didn't even think about that. That's right. So we're sitting in the well, there was also something interesting that you told me at that time because I was giving you installments of my journals and you were laughing. You were like, oh, she thinks she knows me so well because I thought you wouldn't read them while you were working, but you did. And so um, you told me, um, just remember that the production always reflects what the film is about. And I said that. something, yeah, and I said something smart-ass, like, oh, I think that uh, this film reflects what your last film was about, because we were shut down at the time <laughs> about state of things. But um, Yeah, it but was funny. We lived the whole situation of state of things in the middle of Paris, Texas. We were stranding without film, without true? money, without script. We just couldn't continue. Isn't that it funny? Was so it was like strange. a premonition I had with state of things. It really was. It really was. But I also have found that that is true. That the production reflects what the film is about every time. I think it's very true. It's even scarily true sometimes. And if, you, if your crew loves working on the film, you'll see it in the film. And if, you, if everybody's miserable, you'll feel it in the film. On, on yes. Uh, even that psychology, uh, even the gaffer and the grips and everybody's good humor shows in the film. I'm totally convinced that the crew is more important than anybody ever gives them credit for because they yes. make the mood of it and you see it in the end. You actually feel it. That is so true. Well, on TV that is especially true also because, of course, if you have a crew that works... Well, one thing that I found, especially in TV, but this is, of course, true in film, is that, uh, you know, where... The more storytellers, you have a better product. You know, if everybody's trying to tell the story within their departments. And, you know, you get on some things and they're just not, they're not storytellers. You know, they're not, you know, I find on TV shows, you know, there's certain TV shows where people are not storytellers. But one show that mm -hmm. I did, I've done quite a bit of, and Southland was a good example of that too, and this other show, Murder in the First, they're all storytellers in the, mm -hmm. on the crew. And so they're all, you know, in sync together and they're all uh, committed to story, which is really kind of a beautiful thing, is that 
they're all invested in telling the story as well. Yeah, it's a great communal experience if you really want to tell the same story together. In movies, very yes. often, it's just the director pushing the story through very often. But I think on television, if you work so intensely, you all will have to want to tell the same story in order to get it done. Give me an idea. Yes. I never had a chance to ask anybody how many setups you would do in Southland or Sex in the City. Just, I never got the nitty gritty. How, how many setups would you have to do a day? Well, Southland was interesting because that was all steady cam. So that was huh. that was more gorilla than I ever even worked wow. because they would. It's one guy out there, you know, Jimmy Murrow, who also directed a few of the episodes, and they would let, um, they would just let the streets go because it was cop activity. So they'd go, well, people are always watching cops. So whatever we get on the streets, people looking in the camera, go, you just go with it. And it was a lot of stuff in one shot then. Yes, exactly. So everything was, uh, there was a lot of, you know, blocking, of course, for the steady cam. And um, so that was, that was less setups than what you would do on, well, I mean, some of the early, it was really tedious because it was very formula, you know, and so they'd want to make sure they had you know, just the usual, you know, just the meat and potato, you know, the close-ups of this, close-ups of that, inserts yeah. of this, you know, so and that there was a lot. close everybody involved all the time, yeah. Exactly. But, but still give me a number. How many setups would you do a day? <laughs> I just want to know the number. <laughs> God, um, God, I just don't even, I don't even know. See. I don't even know how to answer that, honestly. Um so many that you forgot and you didn't count them at the end of the day. I think I just didn't, Ben. <laughs> See, I'm very anal about these things. At the end of the, at the, end really of the shoot, are. I always go to the script girl and say, uh, the continuity girl and say, how many setups did we do? I really want to know the number. And, and, oh, God, yeah. Uh, and my own record in my lifetime so far is 53, which we did, which we did with Franz Lustig, the DP, on Land of Plenty. I did one day of 53, oh. and I still think that it's compatible with any TV show. Oh, yeah. Must be pretty I much would say out there. For sure. Because I would say it's probably, it's probably half that, I would think. It's still tremendous, yeah. and it's still a lot. So, yeah. So storytelling, let's, let's stick to that issue. Because... Yeah. Because you were there when we did Paris, Texas, and it was the first time I believed in a story in my life. And maybe that's why the film turned out well, because I had this trust in the story. And I think it was the fact that Sam was involved and we got the characters right from the beginning. And and we really all wanted to know what was going to happen to this guy, Travis, and this woman, Jane, and this little boy, Hunter. So the story was for once linked to people I really understood. and. I really believed in it. You see, all the movies before, they deal with the fact that I, <laughs> that I didn't believe in the story. And out of a sudden, I had one that I really, truly wanted to keep following. And I think that was the whole... I think that's still, for me, the magic of Paris, Texas, that the story is so... 
there is just no doubt that this is a real story. And that, and even now, my, I mean, how many years later? It's scary, 30 years later or so. Exactly. I still think of that little family and I still think of them as if they continue having a life together. I know. I know. It's very true that you can see... You don't just see the life of, of the actors who are all still here, which is amazing in itself, you know, but, um, but that, uh, that you can picture those characters living on. That's great storytelling. Yeah, at one where point you we, see wanted, that to life a, we wanted to do a, a little thing for about an hour with Nastasia and Harry Dean and Hunter. And yes. I actually thought I would set it in a little house in Paris, Texas, because Travis owned that piece of land there. And we were really talking about yes. it with the three actors and everybody wanted to do it, and especially Nastasia, because she loved her little son so much, Hunter. And she stayed in touch with him all the, all, over all these years. But she for some has. reason, it was never, we never got it off the ground because, I don't know, maybe sometimes it's also good that you don't look at your characters 30 years later, but... I still, I was very much tempted by it, and and maybe it's also piece partly guilt because I always felt guilty towards that city, Paris, Texas, that it doesn't actually appear in the film, and oh yeah, <laughs> so so I I mean I, I I really feel I should should I should do it do it justice somehow, and that's why we thought maybe we do a little sequel and actually shoot it in Paris, Texas, but we never got to do it. I remember this. Yes. God, that would have been great. That would have been really fun. But I know what you mean about revisiting. There's certain characters that I feel like you don't quite finish with or you don't you don't want to mm. let them go. Yeah. And and then sometimes when it doesn't work out, I I've tried to do this with a couple of things where I've tried to do a sequel or I've tried to do a TV show or you know, I just think, well, maybe they they weren't. Maybe I already told that story. Maybe I need to let them just kind of uh, stay where they where they stayed mm-hmm. and live in that world where characters go when they live on. Maybe, maybe mean, they're not mine they have anymore. Enough characters. Yes, the heaven of characters. The, the, the paradise of characters. Well, most of all characters are in purgatory. You know, <laughs> they I think are, aren't Travis they? is in but purgatory. He's not in heaven, and he didn't belong in hell. He was too good, but probably Travis is still in purgatory. And where do you think Jane and Hunter are then? I think they went to paradise straight there. Yes. Anyway, I don't think. Who knows who went? Who is going to go where? Where do dogs go? You know, I think dogs also go there. Not only movie dogs. All dogs. All dogs go to heaven, I think. I agree. <laughs> I agree. I have to believe that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and cats do too. I don't know. And cats. It's so sad now, to what see about Alice? Where did Alice go? Little Alice. Oh, she's... Alice is one of my favorite characters in what? all of movies, as you know, because yeah, I is still I adore her. And she... Do you know that she? made one more movie the little little yellow who played in Alice in the City she made one more movie afterwards and when we shot together she was she turned 8 and then she made another movie 
in her holidays when she was nine, and she decided that was it because the other movie was a television movie and she didn't like the experience at all. And so she said, I'm not going to do any more movies because it's not as fun as I thought when I was working with them. So, yeah. And then she became a costume yeah. designer. And she did that for 10 years and she wow. had two boys. And then in, the, in her early 30s, she said, movie making is cool, but it's not really socially relevant as much as I wanted it. And she started with two boys to study medicine and now she is a full-blown doctor and, <gasps> and to do that when you're already a mother and have two kids and when you had a whole other life i thought it was so courageous she's one of my my heroes little alice oh who's now, my god uh, who's now a, a doctor i love her so much that is amazing what a perfect what a perfect story for that girl that played that character because that's to me, that's one of the most empowered female characters ever. Yeah. Little did I Alice. know, because she was running the set, did I tell you? <laughs> no, tell me. <laughs> because because for, some, for some reasons, I liked her very much, and she was so smart. And eventually yeah. she realized the power of the whole thing was with the director when he said cut. So at one point, <laughs> she got she got me to promise that in the scenes I would do with her, I would let her say cut. So, which of course was a disaster because sometimes she never said cut because she felt she still had she something forgot. coming. No, yeah. she said she still <laughs> had something going and so she didn't say cut. And, but we stuck to the rule. She always said cut in her scenes and it gave her a tremendous, um, I don't know, it gave her tremendous control of 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 herself and of her scenes and I mean oh. she was just a little girl but she understood and and Rudiger the the man he was always so scared that he was he really <laughs> scolded me that I had given her that power because he said well what if I'm not finished and I said well she's gonna know so she wow. always said cut and and at some point in the film you can actually hear her say cut. I think I didn't cut it out. And at some point in the film, you see her off camera say cut, 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 cut. Oh she my said, cut, God. cut, cut. <laughs> I gotta hear that. Yeah, you'll hear oh, it. Oh, that's, that's a it's great It's now restored and, and it looks better than it ever did. We restored it. The negative was completely damaged. The negative was dead. We made 160 prints. Imagine of a 60 millimeter negative and the negative was lost it was really lost and we it took six months to restore it and now the film looks better than it ever did and the sound is great oh, and God. and so eventually maybe when this retrospective is coming around your way i'd love yes. you, love you to see the restored version of alice because it never looked so good i'm there i'm there it's going to be at the cinematech here in november cool so and you're also going to see paris texas in a beautiful 4k version oh. We really worked our asses off for two years to restore at least 12 of them. We're going to go into the next half from next year on. But so far, we've done 12. Now, and how did all, how did you do that? How did this all come about? How did you start to restore I had to, the films? I had to gain control of the films again. And I had lost control of all my films in the yeah. early early 21st century. 
there was a bankruptcy and I lost all my negative. So, and then for 10 years, it was, I just was able to watch them from a distance. I wasn't involved in any of the decisions, any of the distribution. And then the guy who had bought them at the time, he retired and he, he knew I'm, how much I had suffered from no longer controlling the film. And he said, well, Wim, I know you, you are so attached to them. So I'm going to sell the whole package again and I'm going to give you the first right to buy them back. And I didn't have the money to buy 50 movies back. So Donata and I, my wife and I, we we had a foundation and we collected the money and the foundation then bought all these movies back and now owns my entire work. And, and, oh. uh, and it's really beautiful because I don't own them personally anymore, which is a relief. I never thought I should own them personally, but I can control them with the foundation. And the foundation was in a perfect position to restore them because they could invest more money than a commercial enterprise. You see, like a movie like The Goalie's Anxiety at the Penalty Kick. Right. We re that, who, how many people are going to see that, you see? And, and a commercial enterprise will ask you for the revenues. If we restore the movie and if we buy the music rights and all of that, exactly. it's going to cost a fortune. How are we ever going to recuperate that? So as a foundation, we didn't have to think this way. And, so we restored all these things and even cleared the music rights that I never bought before. I mean, I was oh my God. such a naive little fellow at the time. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. You have a that lot of mu amazing. music in Border Radio. Did you actually, or Gas Food and Lodging, did you ever actually acquire movie rights at the time? The music rights? I did. Can you, you believe did. it? Even on Border Radio, because on Border Radio, we have put in uh, a Frank Sinatra song, My Kind of Town. It was the opening credits to uh, and you actually one of the movies. That? No, that's when we found out that we had to acquire huh. all the rest of it was that they said, oh, that'll be $50,000. And that was in... That was more than 19... your movie cost, right? Yes, exactly. That was in 1984. So you can imagine what it would be now. But um, but we were like, oh, my God. It was the rude awakening to the world of music rights. So we cleared everything, including Bonanza. Um, dun, dun, we lost dun, dun, that dun, dun, after dun, dun, 10 dun. years. Exactly. <laughs> We lost that after 10 years on Border Radio, so we had to sadly cut that scene out of the final oh. uh, the final movie. But um, You but know, the, we did something uh, else. We did something else instead of cutting it out because I have had to face the situation that I had to cut out several scenes in The Goalie's Anxiety at the Penalty Kick because we could not afford to buy Elvis Presley. You see? It was... right. Uh, Van Morrison, he, I could call him and I could talk to him and he actually gave me the rights to Gloria and that and I'm oh eternally grateful God. to the man. But Elvis, you can't call anymore, so you just deal with a corporation that has all these rights. So so at one point, my music supervisor said, I can't help you with, with the Elvis song, Vim. And there's another three or four. It's just 10, 20 seconds in the film. It's costing more than the film initially cost. So we couldn't right. afford it. And then... We did something that I didn't even know it was possible. We only had the mixed track, mono track of those of that film. Nothing else. No more single tapes. No more dialogue. Nothing. We just had a mixed mono track. So how 
can you take the music out? I thought, well, I have to then cut the scene in order for the film to survive. And then they developed a technology that you can sort of take the music out from under the dialogue <gasps> if you have a new music that follows the old one exactly millisecond beat by beat. So we, I had these musicians oh. and they composed the Elvis lookalikes and all these uh, lookalike songs with equipment from the 60s. And they just had to surgically exactly have the millisecond right on the tempo. And then you could frame by frame, take the music out from under the dialogue and shove in the new one. And I didn't even know that could be done. And we had to do that with six tracks. And, and that's why the film is now alive because we just were able to substitute old music in an existing mono mix. Can you believe that? That is unreal. Oh my God, I can't wait to tell Tiffany that. Yeah, she's a music her. supervisor now yeah. and has to deal with this stuff all the time, you know, where people are like, I can't, what am I going to do? Well, you know, it is with possible this. now. It is possible. It's a little tedious What's work. the technology? Um, I can connect you to the guys who, who did it. And it is, I think, common knowledge now how to do that. But it all lives and dies with the fact that the music the, that you recreate does have exactly the same tempo. Right. Otherwise, it's not working. It has to fill, fit in exactly in even solos and and voice beginnings. And it has to follow the, the, the layout of the music that you're taking out. And then you can say Wow. That is amazing. And I'm going to send you the vinyl, these new six killer tracks. <gasps> we made yeah! a little vinyl, so I'm going to send that to you. Oh, God, I would love it. I'll who who did the music? What? Who did that? It's a Who band, did the it's tracks? A, it's, a, it's a musician. He does a lot of rockabilly and stuff, 60s stuff. And, uh -huh. he, and he had all the machines. He had all the mono tape machines and the mixing equipment that people used to work on in the 60s. And that is also crucial that you have the same, yes. you have the same sound quality. For sure. So we, we then... It took a while. I mean, and we had to find the singers and we had to... I mean, Elvis Presley is a tall order to, to <laughs> recreate, but we made it. Right. Unbelievable. I couldn't remember if, if the song Gloria was in Goalie because yeah. I, what I remember is the actress going, saying her name's Gloria and then her going G-L-O-R-A. Yeah. It's so genius. I love that. I'll never Such forget obvious that. obvious dialogue. But the Gloria was <laughs> but so crucial so because they were, there was a lot of dialogue under the Gloria track and, and uh, it would have been months and months of work to substitute it. So I wrote a letter to Van Morrison and God bless his soul. He actually said, well, I understand your problem and, and I just waved it, believe it or not. That's amazing. That is just amazing. The man just turned 70 the other, the other day, Van, two days ago. Oh, I just saw that on um, people were place on Facebook. Happy birthdays. Yeah, there you go. Incredible. There you go. Now, so, can I ask you, Vim, about working with composers? Because, yep. you know, I realize that, um, I mean, 
For me, what was amazing when I discovered your very first movies is that um, I nobody had been using. This is always hard for me to explain, but nobody had been using music of the past in the present as part of people's lives. People would use music from the 50s or the 60s by the 70s. They would use pop music like American Graffiti used it, which yeah. used it very well, but they would use it to set the time and place. But but like Goli is a good example where here's this song from the 60s with these characters in the 70s playing a record and going, this is part right. of my life now. Nobody had done that before. I don't know if you realize that, but nobody had done that. So um, no, I did not realize was, because it felt so natural, but it was yeah, certainly fun. It's how we lived, but nobody was doing it. So... But then I, so I always think about the songs that you put, because I know how important records are to you and always have been, and jukeboxes, and, and, you know, how we listen to music has always been so important to you, how people, how characters listen to it. But, but then you also, I always forget until I get struck by the scores on your films that you also worked with composers from the beginning. So yeah, and how sometimes did you, you sometimes you combine the two? You have both score music, like on on Alice there was score music by uh, Can. Not my much, but one a, of my favorite scores ever, by the way. Yeah, and I then know of you course told there were me. all the songs, and and yes. I think that's part of the part of the fun that score and 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 soundtrack can actually can actually complement each other and sort of throw a light one on the other and. And then they have so so different functions, and the way I used existing songs, I never used them as score. I never just put them over the, over the, over the shots. I always used them as source, and you see the source. So there is a jukebox, or there is a radio, or right. there is a record player, or whatever. So it's always justified. Or there is a car radio, or whatever. And right. I never right. really wanted to use it as score because score is music that you put over it and you don't know where it's coming from and uh, I, I I never really wanted to do that with rock and roll I sort of always insisted that it would have a source in the image and in the life of the people listening to it yeah I love that that's very true I hadn't even thought that that's that's always the case but I'm now flashing back on every single like Kings of the Road they're in the truck Yeah, they yeah, had this beautiful little machine, this rec 45 record player. I love that so much, so that good, is, so good. You can good. shove in the, the singles, just like you shove in a CD today, in a CD player. Totally. And it was such a dream machine. Boy, the discovery of that little machine made the entire movie happen. When, when I found that machine, I knew we can make a movie. Because what else would you do at the time with music? You couldn't put it on the radio, exactly. right? Exactly. And you, you didn't just have, have an You were at everyone's what, mercy. Yeah, exactly. You were at the mercy of whatever radio station you were going to tune into. And I always hated to be driving and you have to change radio stations because you lost the signal. or yes. And then they played lousy music, so you tried to find another one. And uh, 
and of course now with CDs and everything, and even with cassettes, oh, yeah. you can handle that yourself. But Kings of the Road was even before the time of cassette players. You see, so it's what so do you do? Great. What do you do? And then we found that machine that was like a, a, a portable jukebox. Incredible, absolutely incredible. I want one of those. I guess we kind of got them now, but uh, yeah, we have because you can just. Anyway. You can just wirelessly have your Bluetooth play, yes. but but it was in, great. In music heaven in, in, in relation to at the time. We are indeed, and you did buy me my first iPod. I did. Do you remember that? Yes, we went to lunch, and you were like appalled that me. I was appalled you that said you, didn't you have of all one. people. Yeah, yes, you of yes. all people. You said so. You yes, took yes. me to the store right after that, and bought it for me. Oh, God bless my soul. We know you're going to have But it, it was unbelievable. I figured she, Allison is the first one to have an iPod at the time. When was that? It's a long... I mean, they're completely out of fashion. It's a long now, but, time. But at the time, I figured you're going to be the first one. And then you, you you sort of were sort of quite bashful about it. I said, no, I don't have one. Yeah, yeah I was. <laughs> After here, I have been making you mixtapes and... I still have and you know, some by of the your way, mixtapes. I still have oh, you some. You do? Yeah. Wow. I, I think I still have one that that you made for Patrick. Oh yeah. You might you I still have I that? took it. I do. Yes, I took it. He left oh. it at my house. I was like it's mine now. <laughs> it's so it's so revealing to listen to to these cassettes, these compilations from the time. It's like psychoanalysis. Yes. You, you you listen to these old cassettes and and it's like reading somebody's uh, mind or it's like it's people true. Are an open book in these playlists at the time. I mean now everybody plays it's in random, so you don't have that anymore. That same effect that because at the time what we put so much thinking into these playlists. You did too. So I sometimes much discovered thinking. the most unbelievable. Um, reasons why you put that song after that and that so and that yes. was the fun of it well it was a narrative and it yeah. was like an unconscious thing some of the time there was well it's like telling a story where there's the unconscious part and there's the conscious construction and there's the work you had to do to get the records out and you know make sure that they weren't skipping all over the place from you know, uh, scratches or whatever, yeah, and God. then uh, do the work, and then put the playlist together, and go. Does this really make sense? Does this work? And and uh, you know, you you were tell you were telling something to somebody when you gave them a mixtape. Exactly, it was like a piece of your heart. Yes, totally, it was really totally. Psychology, and it was also a story you were telling to the other person. And it was storytelling. Yes. You're totally right. That is that is a lost art now because now that everything is random, story is gone. Well, this is this is troubling to me. I have found that to be true too. Where, like, how um, how do we get? How how can we be satisfied again? You know, I don't want to have to constantly go back to the past to be satisfied by a movie or by a 
or by a story or by even by a TV show, you know, I, I, I want it to be constructed to be told to me, you know, to tell me something. So what's your conclusion? And I, I don't know. I think that we have to still commit to storytelling. I think that we have to, you know, we have to, even, even if it's, well, I remember Kurt Voss saying once, he was talking about, uh, line, uh, Wichita Lineman by mm -hmm. Jim Webb. And he says, you know, that's like the greatest storytelling. He says, if I could do that in less than three minutes, if I could make a movie like that, I would just feel like, okay, well, I'm done then. You know, I told that story. That's, that's like a great story to tell in less than three minutes. So I feel like no matter how short, um, how short, uh, the attention span gets, you can still tell a story within that time frame. You still gotta, you still gotta commit to story, yeah. and to a voice to tell it. Story is also so much linked to linear because story needs to be told in a linear way, and most of our mu music media are not no longer working linearly. So that part right. of storytelling is sort of right. has disappeared because story needs beginning and middle and end. And if you are not telling it li linear in a linear way anymore, so you lose that feeling of necessity of something following something else necessarily. So, and I agree a lot, some of the satisfaction we got out of these compilations is difficult to get back to it. Difficult to get back. It Digital really technology is. Dropped the idea of linear and that is also a certain cultural sadness about that. Well, I think so too, because yeah, the technology will play things randomly. That's yeah. the problem. I mean, even if you and I correspond, I'm uh, on email, I'm not going to send you a play. I mean, maybe I'll send you a Spotify playlist or something like that, but I'm probably, I'm probably just going to send you one song at a time or, oh, I listen to this or, oh, here's this YouTube video or, you know, or even it's not going to be the that same. You, send me. you remember the letters you sent me? Sometimes you scratched out things, but today we wouldn't scratch it out anymore. We would just I know. take it off the I email. Know. But at the time you scratched off things. And of course I read everything that was scratched out because that's the most, that, that's the great part. <laughs> that's you see, the best you want to part. find out why she scratched it out. So I read off, totally. first, first of all, I read everything you scratched. So and and that part is gone. You can't this the scratching. No. We made it by deleting things, and that is a little bit of a pity that the culture of scratching is gone too. Yes. But I don't Even, want to sound like sound like nostalgic and stuff. I'm sort of happy that we live today, but some of the stuff was interesting and was more linked to storytelling than than today. That's totally true. Yes, I agree. And it kind of, uh, and there, there's character in all of that as well. You know, there's character that you can't get from, well, from an email. You know, you don't get the same character as when, and, and I can't look back on it in the same way, you know, as I can look back on, you know, physical stuff that's written down. Yeah, totally right. Yeah. I mean, all the kids today, they take all these photos. They take a whole shitload of photos and their parents yes. take shitloads of photos. But 
when these kids are adults, none of these pictures that their parents took of them will still be there. None of them. Yes, their own, they won't. Their, their own photos that they take now, a lot of the kids have these phones, they all be gone. Nobody's going to have a picture of their childhood exactly. in another 20 years. Exactly. And I, and I can still print my own negatives when I was six years old. I still have the contact sheets, you see. And I can see all the mistakes I made. And today these kids, even if they're all over-documented in 20 years, they won't find mm -hmm. a bloody picture of theirs unless somebody printed it out. Not at all. And there's the other part of it, which... You know, I've been dying to talk to you recently about um, until the end of the world because of that technology that now everyone's talking about. While it's not dreams, it's that kind of, um, you know, the sort of technology, you know, to, you know, bring us into social media and stuff. Yeah. I and... You're it's right, the crazy. film sort of anticipated the selfie. It did. You were so, you were so sort of... pathetic in all this stuff. They're going to release the film now, next year, and it's also playing in the retrospective, and, and they're only releasing my long version, the director's cut. Right. And that finally, finally does a little justice to this most ambitious thing I've ever done. We just screened it wow. here in, at the IC Center, the film, and the audience really loved it, and they sticked around, stuck around for the five hours, and, and they were all flabbergasted that we actually invented these things, and that none of them existed at the time, like car navigation, everybody knows that now, but at the I time know. it was science fiction, and we invented how it, how it would be if somebody would tell you where to go. Well, those machines look exactly like your movie. When I see this headgear on people, you know, for uh, for virtual reality, I'm like, well, that that's from Vim's, Vim's movie, exactly. But also, the amazing thing that you predicted is our uh, is our relationship to that. Yeah, you can see, yeah, dependency and obsession, and a kind of soul sickness that happens, and that's. That's where, you know, my granddaughter will stop me. She, she actually holds her hand out like, paparazzi, like she's warding off paparazzi from pictures. Because she doesn't, she, she'll tell me, put the phone down, woman, you know, to me about taking pictures of her, you know, or just, you know, not being present for her because I'm in the technology of creating her to share with the world, you know, mm -hmm. and she's like, I'm, I'm right here, you know, let's I'm right here, engage. Don't share me, yeah. I know yeah. these kids have sometimes a very healthy reaction to that, I know. Yeah, but and it's amazing how you saw that, there was that sense of that in your movie, is that we're going to have tough things to wrestle with in social media, this technology. Well, we imagined it innocently, but sort of accurately, and we certainly got it right as far as the dependency goes. Yes. Yes. And uh, one of these days you can share your dreams, I'm sure. Right now we mm -hmm. can share selfies and stuff, but I think it's 
it is no longer real science fiction that you can actually send a little dream to your pal. Yeah, you right. Well, and one day, maybe your grandchild will live that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Maybe that will be the new playlist. Oh yeah. Hey. <laughs> I might not be able to send you a mixtape, but I can send you my dream. Do I want to see it? <laughs> yes. That is the question. It's hard enough to get people to even listen to you say last night and they're like, oh no. Yeah, there's going to be people you don't want to get into their dreams and other people you would love to see that. <laughs> totally. I, I, I would look into yours, I tell you. Because I, I trusted your movies, so I can trust your dreams. There you go. Likewise. Wow. We, Needless we can to form say. a mutual admiration club, but that's not so interesting. <laughs> Don't you have anything to say that sort of bashes me? That's more interesting today. I think people <laughs> people like that much more than people admiring stuff. They like they like people be, stuff being bashed. Come on, come come up with something you always okay. hated about me. What can I me. do? What can I say? Well, I just remember on the uh, I do remember on Paris, Texas, saying. I, I figured in my journal, I was like, well, I see, t I figured out today how Vim manipulates all the women on the crew. And I don't uh -uh. even know what are you that gonna, meant. Are you going to reveal that here? On... <laughs> but tell me, what did I do? I forgot. I don't know. I think you were just charming. Oh, that's it. But everyone was trick. very, very wanting to please. You know, they were all very wanting to please. So well, that's I think I had never syndrome. noticed that before. Yeah, it is. It is. It's always weird for me on the other end. I don't quite get it. I don't know if women directors get it the same as male directors. So. Uh, you would have to know about that. I don't know much. Yeah, about I don't how think so. A woman director behaves on this set. Are you are you bitchy or are you very sweet? Oh, of course I'm so sweet. I occasionally have a bitchy moment. There's oh. always one time that I have a moment where I've kind of lost it. Yeah, me too. I, I think I had some shouting fits on Paris, Texas. Every now and then I got, I was so pissed that we didn't get a shot and I started to shout. And then everybody was frozen and looked at me and said, what happened? And felt, what happened to them? He's always so nice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, totally. I had some fits, I think. Totally. Yeah, I, I actually remember, uh, I remember one, I, I didn't see it, but it was when, you know what, there was a, there was an episode, I think it was, there was some, I heard some voices, we were in that little town, Alpine or something, and then later that's the film, that's when that film, the film came back throbbing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I don't know, it might have been the little explosion on the set. That was always my theory, was it was the energy on set in that moment. Yeah. Well, that was <laughs> It was about that time that the Teamsters spotted us and imposed themselves on us. So oh, yeah. I was so, I was, it was such a radical thing that we had to cut like two weeks out of the schedule. And I got, I think I got very angry a few times. But then again, we had to live with it. And 
And they all stayed on the film until the very end, and some actually were very faithful to us and came to Los Angeles with us and even were on the reshoot and stuff. And right. some of them I got to like. I mean, in the beginning, I thought this was the past, but in the end, some of these were good guys. Well, yeah, and that actually, you know, I remember, God, I just remember in El Paso, those guys coming and, you're so tall. In black limousines. And they were like Do you twice remember they tall. came? They yes. came onto our lot in two black limousines, and the production manager, Don, he went white and he said, uh uh. And then eventually he got up and disappeared in one of these black limousines. And half an hour he came, he came back out and he said, This is the deal. Because yeah. some of our crew was on, was on tourist visa and they knew everything about us. And, and Claire was in it as a tourist. And I don't think Robbie had a real working visa, so they knew everything about us. And they said they're going to oh. whistle, they blow the whistle on us, except if we employ twelve. And then we did that, and he had to cut the deal, and and that was a black day in our in my life. But we survived it, Allison, and we survived our little telephone thing because I think we run out of time here. Have we? Oh man! Yeah, yeah we're going to do a sequel. <laughs> We do. Are you gonna? When are you coming to LA next? Um, I don't know. I'm, I can't wait I hope to I see get your to new movie. A bit with the retrospective, but right now I'm probably gonna start shooting another documentary. So it, I'll see how it works out. And if ever I come down your way, I let you know. And and if ever you need some of your old records back, give me a order. <laughs> oh, Vim! What a what a complete joy. I feel like we were just hanging out. I forgot that we were recording anything. I yeah, hope it makes too. sense to people. And I didn't even see you. I mean, we're just here on the phone. So I wish you a good rest of the day and whatever you do. And, and all my best, Alison. Huh? Big Take kiss. And the Love kids you. as well. Huh? Give them, give yes. them a hug. Okay. And Donato for me. Love you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Nick Dawson from TalkHouse Film, and you've been listening to Vim Vendras and Alison Andrews on the TalkHouse Film podcast. The episode was engineered and edited by Elia Einhorn. For more filmmakers talking film and TV, visit thetalkhouse.com film. Subscribe to TalkHouse Film and TalkHouse Music podcasts on iTunes, where you can find all our previous episodes. And while you're there, please rate and review if you can. Hi, this is Wim Wenders, correctly pronounced Wim Wenders, and you're listening to the Podhouse Film, to the Talkhouse Film Podcast, not the Podhouse Film Talk. Oh, God, I'm fucked